the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Pat Williams Power Hour, AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. This is your hour when Orlando Magic Senior Vice President Pat Williams sits down and speaks with authors who have written books on topics of interest and insight for listeners like you. And now, here's your host, Pat Williams. Welcome again to the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. We're back, folks, here on AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. We're ready to go. So is Pete Paquette, the engineer extraordinaire. Andrew Herdliska produces the show. And I want to introduce you to Ian Valencourt. He's in Canada, Ontario, Associate Professor of Old Testament and Hebrew at Heritage Theological Seminary in Cambridge, Ontario. We're going to be talking about his book, Treasuring the Psalms. How to read the songs that... Shape the Soul of the Church. Ian, nice to catch up with you, and welcome to Orlando. Great to be here, Pat. How did this book come about? Uh, well, it kind of originated in my doctoral studies, my Ph.D. work at, at the University of Toronto. And I I wrote my dissertation on um, Psalms 110 and 118, and um the PhD is kind of, you have to really understand broad scholarship, and then you go really deep on a really thin flow. But as I was reading kind of broadly in the Psalms, um, I, I didn't find a, a Psalms introduction that I thought, this is a bullseye, this is the one I would want to assign as a textbook. And why don't they say this, and why don't they say that? And it, it dawned on me later, uh, probably too late, like ridiculously later, that, oh, I'm doing PhD work because I can write a book, and I can write this book. So th- this kind of came from that. But it also came from my years, 14 years as a pastor, and speaking to real people about the Word of God and seeking to really be um, frontline, practical, and kind of with gospel. And um, anyway, so those two things are, are where it originated. Ian, the book breaks down into three parts. Let's talk about part one, the story reading the yeah. Psalms canonically, I think I pronounced that right, close. Yeah. What, what does that mean? It means that the book of Psalms isn't, um, probably contrary to what was popular opinion anyway, the book of Psalms isn't just kind of this randomly random assortment of, of Psalms, but um, although they were written as individual compositions by individual poets, David wrote, 73 of them, and, and so on and so forth. Um, they were intentionally shaped into a book under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so we ought to read the book of Psalms with a flow and a context. And although David may have written one psalm, and beside his psalm, it may have been written by Asaph, there's a, there's a flow, there's a theme that you can kind of trace through the book and development. And and so that's what that's what we mean by canonical reading. Chapter one, from individual psalms to the book of psalms. Explain that to us, Ian. Yeah. So what I'm doing in that chapter is um, kind of stepping back and remembering that whole process that I just kind of talked about briefly just now. It, that um, individual poets wrote the psalms and. They, they wrote at a specific time in history, and, um, but again, over time, they were shaped into a book. And the Holy Spirit, who inspired the original poet, also inspired um, those, the, the editors and the collectors who shaped these psalms into a book. Um, maybe an analogy for that would be like um, uh, an album today. 
that uh, the artist wrote individual songs, but um, contrary to our playlists and, and shuffle and all that, the, the artist really wants us to listen to it as an album from beginning to end. And I saw that on the uh, Ed Sheeran Equals album. He, um, in the Apple Music description, he, he said, um, I, you're going to make your playlist, you're going to do your thing, but I ask you just once, listen to it the way it was meant to be heard from beginning to end. And I wrote individual songs, and yes, you're going to make your playlist, but there's a flow, and I want you to hear it the way I intended it to be heard. And in a similar way, the Holy Spirit intends us to read the Psalms with a flow as a, as a book, even though that, yes, they're original compositions. And since the same divine author inspired the human poet as, and who also inspired the collector, there's that intentionality from beginning to end as well. Even if the original poet didn't understand, okay, David's writing Psalm 110, but this is going to be in book five near the end, and all that kind of stuff. So that's, that's what we mean by from individual psalms to book of psalms. Now I want you to explain to us superscriptions. What's in a psalm, okay. t- what's in a psalm title? Yeah, so if you turn in your, in your, in your Bible to the book of psalms, you'll see, um, you'll see the title say, I'm just kind of randomly got a Bible open in it, Psalm 102. Um, and sometimes our Bibles will have a, have a summary kind of, this is the theme of the psalm. That's not from the original poet. That's not a part of the psalm itself. That's not part of inspired and inerrant scripture. But then there's this other part that comes before verse 1. In the case of Psalm 102, it says a prayer of an afflicted person who has grown weak and pours out a lament before Yahweh, before the Lord. And that is actually part of of the psalm. And um, whether the original poet wrote of David or whether, you know, the ink is still wet and David gave the psalm that he just wrote to the, the worship director, Asaph, and Asaph wrote of David and maybe even the occasion when, you know, when he fled from the face of Absalom, his son, or something like that. Uh, we don't know um, if the original poet wrote that or someone shortly after that was familiar with the situation. But what we do know is there's not a single Hebrew manuscript of the Psalms, or Greek for that matter, that do not include the superscriptions, these titles. And they, in fact, when we read them in English, you know, in, I've got my NIV Bible open here, and I love the NIV Bible. I love the 2011 NIV. It's a great Bible. Um, but our English Bibles tend to put those superscriptions or psalm titles. They're called very. They're called either or. Um, they tend to put them before verse one, and in a different font and in italics. But when you read it, like Hebrew manuscripts, that were written by scribes before the printing press. They were copied out. The superscription was verse one, and even in modern Hebrew Bibles today, like um, I teach Hebrew at at Heritage Seminary, and in our Hebrew Bible that we use in class, um, the superscription, um, if it's a long superscription, it is verse one, and verse two starts. Um, what what is verse one in English? And if it's a super long superscription, like Psalm fifty one. That's verses 1 and 2, and um, verse 3 in Hebrew is actually verse 1 in English. So what, what the Hebrew is kind of emphasizing for us is this is actually part of Scripture, and we should read it as, as Scripture. And when we read the superscription, sometimes there's musical or liturgical information, and sometimes we're not even 100% sure what it means, but what we do know um, in the very least— if there's musical or liturgical things on the Gittith or something like that, it's a reminder that this, that this was to be sung in community with God's people. And that would shape, okay, well, this is the kind of thing we should sing when we gather with God's people, or we should pray as, as we lead prayer in the assembly in church today. Um, but a, a major, major part of superscriptions, an important part, is they tell us who the author is 
um, about two thirds of the time or so. And so we've got, you know, a Psalm of David, a Psalm of, uh, of Solomon, um, Asaph, and they help us kind of place it historically. And they give us a bit of a context, like um, just really briefly, David, um, Psalm 110 says of David, a Psalm, and it goes on to talk about this prophetic vision that David had. But, you know, my uh, Yahweh, an utterance, a prophetic utterance of Yahweh to my Lord. Well, whose Lord is it? Well, we back up and see this is a Psalm of David, and David is a speaker in the Psalm, and and really he's he's a prophet in the Psalm, just like Isaiah or Ezekiel or Jeremiah were prophets, um, giving a prophetic utterance from Yahweh. And um, that actually matters to the interpretation of the Psalm. So that's what we mean by the superscriptions, those titles that were a part of the original sometimes we can confuse and say mm, they're just the unimportant part we skip over. Ian Valen, I would, I would Ian Valencourt is our guest, folks. We're talking about his book, Treasuring the Psalms. Uh, the book breaks down into three parts. The first one is the story. Ian, I want to get to part two, uh, the Savior reading the Psalms yeah. Christologically. The Psalms in Christ, the Psalms in Christ part two, the Psalms in the New Testament the Psalms and the Christian. Uh, what, what's going on here? Well, not only does the book of Psalms um, <clears throat> tell a story, and there's a flow to the Psalms, and we didn't get into that. We didn't have a chance. You have to read the book for that. But um, but they also point us to Christ. And it, it's the conviction of the New Testament authors, and, and therefore the Holy Spirit inspired them, that all of the Old Testament finds its fulfillment in Jesus and, and his work of redeeming us. And so when we read the Psalms, um, we need to be thinking, how does this point me to Jesus? Or in light of the fact that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament hope, how should I apply this Psalm to my life today? And so chapters 6 and 7, we kind of, and, and really 8, Psalms in the New Testament, we kind of think through different ways, different angles, that um, when we read the Psalms, here are some categories to have in mind and ask the question, um, does this um, category of thinking help lead me to Jesus and see Jesus as the fulfillment of the Psalm? And it's not the case that every single category will apply to every single Psalm. And it's not even the case that we should separate out every category, but um, and say which one am I using now? But they're just kind of they're kind of prompts for our thinking that does this point me to Jesus in some way? My guest is Ian Valencourt. We're chatting with him. He's up in Canada, in Ontario, Cambridge, Ontario. The book "Treasuring the Psalms." This is the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's AM nine ninety, FM one hundred one point five. The Word in Orlando. More with Ian. Stay with us. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment. AM 990 and FM 101.5. The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour. AM 990 and FM 101.5. The Word. Now, here's Pat. My guest is Ian Valencourt. And we're talking about his book, Treasuring the Psalms. Ian, uh, I think there's more that uh, I want you to share with us from part two, particularly the Psalms and the Christian. Uh, what, what can we learn from that uh, chapter? Yeah, so there's, uh, it's kind of a hinge chapter, kind of a leading out of part two and into part three of the book. And what, I, what, I, what we recognize in that chapter is that not only do the Psalms, you know, we got all these different ways that the Psalms point us to Jesus and his person and work. Um, and when we step back on the one hand and reflect on that, what we're really doing is gospel application. What God is, what, what, what we're doing, what God is leading us to do in that situation when we see how, is, how does Jesus fulfill this Psalm um, or this aspect of this Psalm, we're kind of we're being nourished by an aspect of the gospel. And so I call that gospel application. So, um, for example, we've got these uh, psalmists who are suffering and crying out. And 
they point us to the ultimate one who suffered for us. And so when we, when we use the psalm, this vivid account of crying out in suffering to, um, you know, weeping David, um, it leads us to reflect on weeping Jesus, who, whose suffering and whose tears were shed so that we may not have tears for eternity. And so there's this gospel application that's just really precious. But there's also uh, the reality that the, the individual psalms were also meant to be um, sung when I meet, when Christians and believers in the Old Testament before Jesus and Christians today gather to worship and prayed. And so they can give us the words to pray when we don't have the right words to pray. They lead us in prayer. They lead us in song. And, and they, they can be prompts that lead people to write a song about, you know, with the same outline. You can even sing it as is metrically. But um, the point is that um, what I call that is direct application. And so if we think about weeping David in the Old Testament, for example, um, when we do direct application, we, when we do gospel application of that, we reflect on weeping Jesus and his, and his cross work for me. But um, when we do direct application from weeping David, we say, what about the weeping Christian? And in my own night of weeping, when I'm at, a ho- when I'm at the side of a hospital bed, or maybe I'm in the hospital bed, um, or when financial crisis comes, or I'm going to lose my home, or whatever or time of a massive uncertainty with massive implications, I can read a psalm of weeping David and have... David, take me by the hand and lead me what to pray and give me words and then lead me to, here's the character of God for you in that. And, and um, yeah, so it's, it's really precious to think about both gospel application of the Psalms and direct application. Uh, the words become my own. Ian Valencourt is our guest. We're talking about his book, Treasuring the Psalms. And Ian, it is time to move to part three. It's called the soul. Reading the Psalms personally and corporately and direct application of desperate Psalms. There's lament, there's thanksgiving, there's praise. I want to hear about all of it. Okay, yeah. So um, I've already kind of touched on lament in my example, but what we do in part three is flesh out this whole direct application using um, three prominent themes that occur in the psalms. One is lament, you know, a, a tears-type psalm, a, a weeping psalm. Um, one is thanksgiving, um, looking back on a time when there were, when there were tears in my life and, and drawing a line from that, that situation's over. I, I'm out of it and saying, but God is the one who got me out of it. He delivered me. I cried out to him in that time, and he got me out of it. And I want to give thanks to him for what he has done. And then the the praise psalm that's just focused on who God is and his character. And um, and it's just kind of this Godward worship with sometimes reference to myself, but sometimes not even reference to myself. I just, I'm kind of lost up, caught up in who God is. And those three themes are prominent in the psalms. There are others too, psalms of repentance and this kind of thing. But these are just three examples. And what I do in these three sections is I say, okay, what do um, these lament psalms, these desperation psalms, what's the typical structure of them? And then let's flush it out and kind of walk through one and say, how do I apply this directly to my life in my, for my own night of weeping? And I do the same in Thanksgiving. And I do the same in praise. My guest is Ian Ballancourt. Ian The conclusion sounds interesting to me. The treasure hunt has just begun. Yeah. Um, Tell us more. Yeah, so the goal, my goal in writing this book is not so that people read my book a hundred times. My goal in writing this book is to help equip people. Um, Okay, now I've learned um, some things about the, the Bible but the ultimate goal is I want people to dig in the Bible on their own. And, and so um, I want people to read the Psalms from beginning to end and, and begin to see an unfolding story emerge 
after having read you know my book, others, um, and and kind of getting some tools to be able to dig better. Um, I want people to read the thoughts from beginning to end and see, have the question in their mind, how does this point to Christ and his work of redemption for me? And I want people to read the songs from beginning to end um, in times of calamity, in times of thanksgiving, in time, where they've been delivered, in times of um, where they're just caught up in worship. Have the psalmist take them by the hand in, in those, for those times. I just really like them to be led ultimately to the wonder of God's work for them in Jesus. And I, I'd, I'd love people to um, find Jesus for the first time. I'd love Christians to be deepened, but ultimately for those people, I'd like, I'd love to help equip them so that they are Bible people, so that the Psalms, in this case, the Psalms, but the entire Bible is something they, they immerse ourselves themselves in. I, um, you know, I was at a men's conference on the weekend with my son, just taking it in and just seeking the Lord to grow. And one of the speakers says that if the, if the Bible is not shaping um, what we treasure most, something else will be. And so just that need to be equipped to read the Bible so that the Bible actually becomes the lenses through which we view this world. And yeah, that's, that's ultimately the goal. What psalm should we start with today? Uh, wh- wh- where do you want us I, to begin? I'd start Psalm 1, because Psalms 1 and 2 are the gateway to the book. They're the, fir- they're the, they're the first two psalms in the book for a reason. They're, they're kind of the, the two lenses through which we should read the rest of the book. So I'd, I'd start at Psalm 1 with the theme of the Word of God, and Psalm 2 with the theme of the, the Anointed One as the... Um, the anointed king as the son of God. And those two, those two Psalms kind of together lead us into the book. Ian, um, do you have a Psalm that has really, really impacted your life? Yeah, there's so many. Um, I love Psalms 110 and 118 because of um, the way they point me to Jesus. And that's why I wrote my, my doctoral dissertation on them. Um, and really they um, point me to Jesus as the ultimate prophet, priest, and king um, who, who's, um, who came to save me from my sins. So those are amazing, but there's so many. I, you know, I lift my eyes up to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from you, maker of heaven, creator of the earth. Um, and, you know, Psalm 121, um, Psalm 97, Yahweh reigns, let the earth rejoice. Um, that's just wonderful. Um, I could, I could go on. There's just so many. It was Psalm of Repentance in Psalm 51, creating me a clean heart of God and renew a right spirit within me. Um, there's a Psalm for every season of the soul, mm. as, as one person put it. Ian, I've always wanted to ask an expert, who was Asaph? A-S-A-P-H. Who was, who was he? He was likely the um, choir director um, at the time of King David, I believe. So um, he led um, worship among God's people in the tabernacle before the temple was built. And, um, and so he would have, yes, so he, he wrote some psalms, but he would have also um, collected the psalms of David um, in a collection in, in the tabernacle and Probably later in the temple. I'm not sure his dates, but yeah. Do you think uh, they knew each other? Oh, yeah. They would have, yeah, because David was so involved in um, tabernacle worship. You see that in the Chronicles. If you could have uh, 10 minutes with David, what's the most important question you'd want to ask him? <laughs> uh I don't know what I'd I I just want him to I just want him to reflect on his life and just I want to learn wisdom from you. Uh, I don't want to set the agenda here, and I I suspect he'd he'd point to um, his years of suffering early on when he was the rightful anointed king, First Samuel sixteen, and then he had defeated Goliath um, on behalf of God's people, First Samuel seventeen, and then he had years and years and years of suffering unjustly. And his life was constantly under threat, but he chose not to um, 
kill Saul um, when he had the opportunity, even though Saul was trying to kill him. And and I, I suspect he would talk about um, it, it's worth it to um, to be true to God and to not take matters into my own hands. And I also suspect he would talk about his adultery with Bathsheba and his murder of Uriah. And he would both likely revel in the grace of God to him in forgiving him for that sin. Ian Valencourt has been our guest, and what a good guest. And what an interesting book, Treasuring the Psalms. This is the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's AM 990, FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. Stay with us. We've got more. We'll be right back. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment. AM 990 and FM 101.5. The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour. AM 990 and FM 101.5. The Word. Now, here's Pat. Ian Valencourt, our guest in that first segment, talking about his book, Treasuring the Psalms. Well, we go from Cambridge, Ontario to Franklin, Tennessee. We found Bishop Todd Hunter and uh, the author of What Jesus Intended. Fascinating title, Finding True Faith in the Rubble of Bad Religion. Todd, welcome to Orlando. So nice to catch up with you. Thank you, Pat. Good to be with you again, too. You open your book with a chapter called, Am I the Only One Who Thinks This? How How the Church Failed Us. I want to hear about this. Well, there's a whole range of things. I'm almost 68. I've been in the ministry since I was 19. So, you know, I've seen a lot of this on, you know, going on 50 years. You know, Pat, it ranges from, oh, my parents made me go to church and I stopped, you know, in the college or I wasn't getting much out of it to, um, you know, I was hurt at church to people being aware of, you know, all the scandals and the Southern Baptist Convention or the Roman Church or the, you know, the latest. Uh, big-time evangelical star to fall into sexual sin. So it's all over the map. You know, you hear a lot today about abuse of power, spiritual abuse, et cetera. And because I have kind of an evangelistic heart married to a pastoral heart, I've just always noticed these trends and cared about them. And I just felt like I wanted to try to make a contribution to this growing trend of, you know, what's often called the de-churched. Now let's move to your second topic. Can I find faith again? A fresh proposal regarding Jesus. Yeah, so that title, What Jesus Intended, um, my working title for the book uh, when I turned it into InterVarsity was something about the aims of Jesus. And the aims of Jesus is a sentence that I discovered in one of Tom Wright's book, I believe, Jesus and the Victory of God, probably 20 or 25 years ago. There's a whole section of this book about the aims of Jesus. I remember reading it, Pat, and thinking, aims, plural. What the heck is Tom talking about? I mean, wasn't Jesus' aim singular to die for us, to forgive us of our sins, so that we can go to heaven when we die? So aims, plural, made me just start thinking, well, to what was Jesus conscious? What did he think was important? What did he think the Father was doing in and through him? And as I started asking those kinds of questions— and coming to reappreciate the life and teachings of Jesus and not merely his death, I realized that I might have a fresh proposal for those who are maybe struggling with Jesus because they look at him through the lens of church hurts. And I've just wondered in that chapter, well, what if we were to look at church through this fresh hearing of Jesus? My guest, Todd Hunter, the topic, the book, What Jesus Intended. Third section, Todd, I am failing to connect to faith and church. Jesus' self-identity is our rescue. What's that mean? That Jesus himself was down on bad religion, that he he knew what was going on around him. He was, you know, Jesus was not some sort of spiritual automaton or something, you know, who just kind of wandered Galilee, you know, spouting religious aphorisms that we can you know, put on a bumper sticker or on our kitchen wall or something, he was actually deeply conscious of what the Father was doing in and through him, which meant, for instance, he knew that the Pharisees and Sadducees were malaligned to that, that they weren't on the same page. 
or the Herodians. You see that name in the New Testament. They were the political uh, people of his day who thought the way to be faithfully Jewish was to kind of keep Rome off their back through political compromise. There were the zealots. You know, these were kind of ancient um, terrorists, ancient holy warriors who believed, no, the best way to be Jewish is to pray prayers and sharpen your swords and get ready for holy war. And then there was what was known as the Essenes or the Qumran sect who thought, no, really the best way to be Jewish in our crazy day is to just leave the cities and towns of Israel, go out and live in caves. And Jesus looked around at all that stuff, Pat, and was able to analyze it based on its alignment or not to the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. This is the thing to which Jesus was most deeply conscious, that somehow through him, God's rule and reign was now present to humanity. You know, his love, his wisdom, healing was more present to humanity in and through Jesus than it had been since mankind was banished from the garden. And so again, that's the fresh perspective I'm, I'm trying to give, that there's a way of thinking about this that doesn't begin with church hurts. It includes our church, but it, it doesn't begin and end there. Todd, what does it mean I've lost the religious plot line? Jesus knew he was living in an unfolding story. Yeah, if you think of Jesus' first public words, Pat, it's, it's really remarkable. I mean, like stunning in the true sense of stunning. He comes into public, and his first words are, the time is fulfilled. Well, what is that? You know, he doesn't come into he doesn't come into town saying, you know, you filthy sinners, you know, God's had it with you, anything like that. His first words, Mark one fourteen, are the time is fulfilled. Well, what does that mean? It means something like Jesus is saying, everything we know of, we now think of as the Old Testament. But that was all preliminary to him. So creation and fall and flood and Tower of Babel, and the calling of Abraham in Genesis 12, and the creation of Israel to be God's redemptive people, and then, you know, the age of the patriarchs, and judges, and kings, and prophets, up to John the Baptist. Jesus, when he says the time is fulfilled, he's saying that whole big, long story, it's now finding its meaning and the beginning of its completion in me. And so my point is, Jesus, well, the, the text goes on to say he proclaims the gospel of God. Well, quick little Greek lesson here, Pat, uh, of there, when you see an of there like that means it's translating the genitive case in Greek, which means possession. And so when Jesus says the gospel of God, he's saying the gospel that belongs to God, and that whole big long story belongs to God. And God's been superintending that history and presently superintends that history uh, until the end of the age. And so Jesus is deeply mindful that he doesn't emerge in a story that simply has to do with sin and healing and repair of, of sin, but it begins with God's pre-creation intentionality. Why did God say, let there be light? Why are there humans? There's some divine intentionality behind that. And the Bible says that someday that divine intention is going to be completed in this lovely Greek New Testament term called telos, which normally just means end, E-N-D, but it's theologically often translated uh, in these texts as fulfillment or completion. And Jesus knows he's arising within that story, and he's giving himself to that story. And I suggest in that chapter that that's a, that's a really good way of thinking about Christian spirituality as well. Now let's move to topic number five. <clears throat> I feel pain, cynicism, mm -hmm. and despair. Where is Jesus? Jesus' orientation to the kingdom of God. Yeah, so Jesus, again, comes into public saying the time is fulfilled. Um, the next phrase is the kingdom of God is at hand. So again, this is the thing to which Jesus was most conscious. Almost all of his teaching, beginning with the Sermon on the Mount, you can think of the various parables in the, um, in the Gospels. Jesus almost talked about nothing else other than the kingdom of God. And again, Pat, because I've been a pastor with kind of an evangelist heart for decades, I, as I said, I've always cared about these things. And one of the ways I express that care 
a few years ago before writing this book is I gathered um, what I think I called issues of, issues of faith groups. So I gathered these focus groups over a period of weeks, you know, just six to 12 people at a time, and we would sit around a table, and I would invite them to be honest about their truest feelings about God, religion, Christianity, Jesus, etc. It was a place where they could say what they really thought or feel, and I began to hear really deep, profound pain. You know, a lot of what we sense about people, they don't want to go to church anymore, is we, we kind of judge that a little bit, like, well, what, you know, what's wrong with them? And maybe there's something to that. But when you begin to actually hear their stories, um, there is a lot of deep pain there. And that, of course, raises the question, where is healing? Where is reorientation? Where is a way of finding the goodness of religion, of Christianity? And in that chapter, I suggest that it has to do with um, saying yes to Jesus' invitation. Come follow me, Jesus frequently said, into life in the kingdom, so that we begin to derive our life from the kingdom of God and live it in the kingdom of God. And I suggest that that's the fresh start, the, the kind of fresh view that would help a lot of people with church hurts. Next topic for you, uh, Todd. What about all the bad things done in God's name? Jesus yeah. taught that eternal life empowers good religion. Yeah, you know, that's an age-old thing, Pat. The technical word for it is theodicy. And, and theodicy just struggles with trying to understand how a good, loving, all-powerful God um, permits evil and suffering, bad things to happen in the world. And of course, people a lot smarter than me, a lot more godly than me, have uh, you know written and talked and taught about these things for millennia now. But it nevertheless is a real thing, meaning it's not just really technical theology. When when a a, a sister of a fourteen year old who was molested by the youth pastor wonders, how did God allow that to happen to my fourteen year old sister? And to happen at a church camp, like, where was God? Or I didn't know my parents very well. They were both drug addicts. And I was raised by my grandmother who died young. And then I had no place to go. Where was God? When you start hearing those kinds of stories, it, it begins to help you not be judgmental and to not see this trend through merely sociological eyes that, oh, less people are going to church in America now than ever, those sorts of things that we read in the headlines in the papers all the time. So it goes from sociology or kind of judging people for not liking the church that we like, and you begin to cultivate a kind of empathy. And in that chapter, I suggest that Jesus's motif for this was to help people see that they could have a different kind of life. Todd Hunter is our guest. We have another segment with Todd. Uh, when we come back, the next topic, can I trust the church to be an instrument of restoration? Todd Hunter, our guest, the book, What Jesus Intended. This is the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's AM 990, FM 101.5, the word in Orlando. We'll be right back. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment. AM 990 and FM 101.5. The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour. AM 990 and FM 101.5. The Word. Now, here's Pat. Todd Hunter is with us from Franklin, Tennessee. What Jesus Intended, the name of the book, and as advertised, Todd, can I trust the church to be an instrument of restoration? Jesus was a healer. Yeah, for so many people, again, the millions of people that we, you know, read about in the headlines, as I was saying, Pat, um, it gets heavily focused on the church, and, and that's appropriately so. Um, one of the things I really discovered writing this book was that there's a very important simultaneity going on, that, yes, people do get hurt in the church, but also, it's um, for me, Pat, it's 9.44 in the morning, Central Time, when we're talking. So just start thinking of the world clock. You know, it's 10.44 Eastern Time, and just you know, go around to Europe and go all the way around the globe to uh, California, let's say, in Pacific Time. 
And right now, I can guarantee you that there are hundreds of thousands, if not millions of acts of kindness being done by people in and through the name of Jesus. But that does, we can't say to somebody who was deeply hurt at church, well, therefore, oh, don't worry about your hurt. There's, but there's a deep simultaneity going on there. And Jesus knew that as well. And he was focused uh, on what I say in that chapter on healing the effects of bad religion. That This book I wrote or the kinds of things that you see in other books that are similar to mine, um, there, this, I, this is not a new idea. Jesus knew bad religion. He said things like, you, you religious leaders, you keep heavy loads on people's shoulders and don't do anything to help them. Um, so, you know, we could go on and on thinking of the ways in which Jesus denounced bad religion. Well, he didn't just denounce it for the sake of like some sort of prophetic denouncement. That was coming out of his heart to heal uh, and to show a different way. And Jesus often healed people as they followed him of their experiences of bad religion. And that's possible today. Next topic for you, Todd. How can I find vibrant faith? Jesus' teachings point to us, to a new way of life. Yeah, what Jesus was getting at was this thing called eternal life. And eternal life is not spatial, S-B-A-T-I-A-L, meaning it's not out there in space somewhere, you know, beyond the stars or something. And eternal life in the Bible is not chronological. It's not something we get out there in time after we die. And it's not mere duration, just like more of something, more of life. There's only one straightforward definition of eternal life in the Bible, John 17, 3, where Jesus says, this is eternal life, that they would know God and his son. And so for Jesus, eternal life is relational, and it starts now, and it goes on forever. But what Jesus is saying is this new kind of life that we're intended to have is not firstly religious, and it's not firstly churchly. It can involve those things. But it's firstly a relationship with the Trinitarian God, so that eternal life is not quantitative. It's not more of something. It's qualitative. It's a different kind of life. And so when you think of all Jesus' teachings about discipleship and pursuing him, it's to cultivate that kind of life here, now. It has nothing to do with earning uh, heaven uh, after we die. It has to do with becoming the kinds of people that God meant for humans to be in relationship to him. Todd, I want you to move to topic number nine. Why is consistent spiritual growth so difficult? Jesus' emphasis on the centrality of the heart. Yeah, Pat, I mean, you know, you're a veteran Christian too. We've all had family and friends and people in church who seem to be trying hard and they seem to be sincere and persistent and they just have a hard time finding permanent or lasting change. And often, often it's because um, we're beginning with or looking at the wrong thing. Jesus clearly taught several times in the Gospels that it's not things external to us that defile us, but it's things within us. From within our heart, Jesus says, comes bad thinking, bad actions, bad attitudes, wrong and sinful things. So the genius of Jesus was, is that spiritual transformation happens from the inside out, not from kind of religious activities in. Now, we can engage in religious activities and spiritual disciplines and that sorts of thing, and we, we all do and we should, but that's not to like change our behavior. It's to change our heart and the transformation of our heart, of our soul, then rather automatically, none of us are perfect, of course, but a transformation in our heart and soul rather automatically transforms attitudes, actions, and words. Now I want you to explain to us, uh, is there an authentic community of faith? Jesus intentionally called and sent a people. Yes, you know, we have this uh, phrase, the body of Christ. Well, what does that mean? 
or there's a, a phrase in the New Testament, ecclesia, the called out ones. Again, what does that mean? What is God doing? What's he doing when he shaped humanity? What's he doing when he called Abraham and shaped the people called Israel? What's he doing as he creates this body of Christ, the, these called out ones, the church? Um, what does it mean to be a part of that? And what I'm getting at here is that for all of us who've had frustrations with the church or even been hurt, whatever that means and whatever it might mean about what we do about it, it cannot mean that we're divorcing ourselves from the head, who is Christ, and the rest of the people who make up his body. Now, I say in the book, Pat, that my wife and I, uh, I think it was in the early 2000s, had a year or two of ourselves where we were deep de-churched. And I didn't talk much about it. I, I didn't hide it. But, you know, I was, a, I was kind of a nationally known Christian leader, so I certainly didn't advertise it. But the best thing that we could do is we went to a little contemplative um, group, small group, a home group, uh, like every Thursday night or whenever it was for a year or two. And that sustained our faith. And so what I argue in this chapter is, is there a way that you can find a group of people who sincerely want to follow Jesus and be with them um, doing this together while our church hurts, spiritual disappointments are being healed? Because there are groups like that who sincerely want to follow Jesus. That could be a local church, could be a home group, could be any number of things. But I just encourage people not to give up on whatever that organic thing is, the body of Christ. I get our frustrations with institutional church, but that's not exactly what the Bible's talking about when it talks about the body of Christ. Now, we've got another topic. Do my religious reservations and churchly hesitations disqualify me? Jesus walks with us on a journey of doubt. Yeah, you know, Jesus' first friends were not perfect. At least four of the 12 had pretty big problems, and we don't know about the other eight. They remember James and John, when they were walking through Samaria, wanted to call down fire from heaven on these cities that they thought didn't welcome Jesus sufficiently. And, and Jesus says to them, of course, oh, you guys, you're like, you're completely out of phase with what the Father is doing in and through me. That is not the way we use religious power, et cetera. So James and John had significant issues over things like power. Today, we would have called that big-time abuse of power. Peter denies Jesus. Um, Judas betrays him. And so not having things perfect has been going on for a long time. There's never been perfect church. There's never been perfect groups of people. And Jesus gets it. So my favorite um, vision of this, Pat, is I, you know, I'm reading between the lines here, obviously, but I picture Jesus and Peter in a courtyard. Peter denies him for the third time. They look across the courtyard at each other. Their eyes meet. Mm. And Jesus, I mean, and Peter, of course, is just horrified that he had just done the very thing he told Jesus he would never do. And Jesus says to him, you know, don't, before this happened, don't worry, Peter, I've prayed for you. Mm. And then the next thing we see is they're on the beach together. And Jesus is making Peter breakfast. Mm. And the relationship is being healed. And I just think that's a pattern for all of us. That there is healing available to us. And that Jesus does not give up on us in our journey to faith. Powerful. So, Todd, what do you want listeners, readers to take from your book? You know, I want them to take an understanding of their neighbors and family on the one hand, for them to understand uh, and therefore maybe not be so judging or criticizing or even not having anything to do with, you know, family or friends who are no longer attending church. Uh, to, uh, so I want them to have understanding, maybe some wisdom, some empathy. And then with that, to be uh, to become a safe friend, you know, like an agent of, of repair, somebody who could represent hope to those who are, you know, the nuns, the duns, the skeptics, the cynical, the, you know, those who are no longer a part. 
So I guess I'm looking for hoping for understanding and hoping for empathetic love towards those who are struggling with their faith. Todd Hunter has, has been our guest. What's the best part about living in Franklin, Tennessee, Todd? Well, for me, as I grew up and lived most of my life in Southern California, it's the beautiful greenness and the slower part of life, slower pace of life. I love it. I drive to work down a two-lane highway, passing cows and horses, you know, not stuck on the 405, as we would say in California. <laughs> and my answer to that same question would be, I'm a Civil War buff. And there's a- oh, yes. Yeah, my I'm sitting right here, Pat, just blocks away from Civil War stuff, yeah. And there, there was a key battle in Franklin, Tennessee, and right. later in Nashville. So, whenever yes. I come to Nashville, I'm a, I'm a Civil War guy. Bishop, yeah. Bishop Todd Hunter has been our guest. The book, make sure you get it, folks. What Jesus intended: finding true faith in the rubble of bad religion. Thanks for joining us for the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. We're back next week, and for more. Right here on AM 990, FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. Have a wonderful week ahead. God bless you, and we'll see you next weekend. Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of the Pat Williams Power Hour. Join us again next week at this time, where faith comes by hearing. AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's Dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here. Here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never before seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. Salemnow.com. <laughs> 